Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Black and Red Book Review Podcast, Season 5 premiere. For those of you joining me for the very first time, my name is Doc. I am a street medic, an anti-fascist, an anarchist, an all-around class struggle hobo troublemaker based out of so-called New England. And on this podcast, I rate, read, review, critique, and mock white nationalists and neo-Nazi literature. I go through the biography of the authors, and I explain the influence that these texts have had in forming movements made up of the very worst people in modern society. I read this shit so that other people don't have to. And on the season five premiere, I was originally planning on releasing this episode sometime around Samhain, which uh, non-Celtic pagans may know as Halloween towards the end of the month here. Uh, But unfortunately, due to a scheduling conflict with the U.S. government and its impending shutdown on Monday, I decided to release this, this episode early so that unemployed federal workers can enjoy learning about fascism from an anti-fascist while they're sitting around not getting paid, or even worse, being dragged into work without getting paid. As I've noted, this is a class struggle podcast, and we are big, big fans of taking direct action to fuck over your boss. So if you happen to have some ideas about how to do that, please feel free to do so. You have the time. So, The text we'll be covering today is entitled Esoteric Hitlerism uh, and was written by a Chilean man by the name of Miguel Serrano. So before we get to the actual text, we usually go through a brief overview of the author's biography, and today will be no different. So uh, Miguel Serrano was a Chilean man. He was born rich, of course, with a silver spoon in his mouth, kind of like Julius Ebola. Uh, His family was quote, of European descent, meaning white, at least by Chilean standards. It's not really clear if Miguel from Chile would be considered white by American-based white nationalists. Probably not, but they sure do love reading him. So, anyway, Miguel Serrano was raised by his grandmother. He joined the National Socialist Movement of Chile. Chile, by the way, remained neutral in World War II up until 1943, Uh, Serrano campaigned for Nazi interests and pushed anti-Semitism via a magazine that he founded and ran personally, which was entitled, and I apologize for my Spanish here, La Nueva Edad. He joined an occult order in 1942, which combined Hitler worship with Kundalini yoga and ceremonial magic. So yeah, uh, the new age to yoga to Nazi pipeline is (laughs) not just a modern thing. It existed back then as well. Uh, Serrano pushed the tale of Hitler's secret survival after 1945 and the idea that he that Hitler secretly still lived in Antarctica. Basically, everything the History Channel says at 3 a.m. or during prime time now uh, for the past 15 years, Miguel Serrano basically invented. He joined the Chilean diplomatic service in 1965. He was fired under Salvador Allende but were turned to the Chilean diplomatic service since 1973 after Pinochet's CIA-backed coup d'etat. He became a prominent prominent neo-Nazi organizer, speaker, and author under the Pinochet regime in Chile, which Pinochet had an on-again, off-again approval of. Sometimes he went too far. Sometimes he was just a normal right-winger. Sometimes he was just a weird guy that lived on a mountain and worshipped Hitler. Uh, you know, even the right doesn't really have much use for these people from time to time. So anyway, brief uh, 
overview of the Nazis in Chile. Uh, the Chilean term for them was Nazistas. There was a failed coup by the National Socialist Movement of Chile in uh, September of 1938, which led to what's known as the Seguro Obrero Massacre, where cops arrested a bunch of Chilean Nazis for trying to overthrow the government, were on their way to bring them to a police station, and then it's not clear who gave the order, but they lined the Nazis up against the wall and shot them, which, you know, Normally, we're opposed to police brutality on this podcast and to the state in general principle, but I'm not going to shed any tears over a bunch of, uh, you know, shot, you know, Nazis getting shot down in cold blood. So, uh, the NSMC of Chile fell out with what's known as the NSDAPAO, the <clears throat> the National Socialist Deutschland's Arbeiter, Deutsches Arbeitersparty slash Auslands Organisation, the Nazi Party's foreign office, foreign affairs office. A thing that on paper still exists, by the way. Uh, the NSDAPAO still unofficially exists. It's run by a guy with a P.O. box out of Nebraska. So that guy might actually be committing literal treason, so feds might want to look at that. Or not, uh, they they won't. But you know, if the feds existed to neutrally enforce the law, that would be a thing that they might consider looking at. Uh, but they won't. So anyway, Serrano was drawn to the NSMC after the failed coup. Uh, so anyway, he he met his uh, secret occult master, who claimed that he remained that the group owed its allegiance to a secretive Brahmin elite who resided in the Himalayas and that the secretive Himalayan Brahmin elite were overseen by noted fan of Buddhism and Himalayan guys, Adolf Hitler, who was the savior of an Aryan race uh, and was going to lead them into a new enlightened age of humanity by winning World War II, which of course did not happen. So anyway, Serrano maintained a correspondence with Rockwell's successor and possible murderer, Matt Kale. We'll cover him later in the season. Serrano was notably not a big fan of Satanism within the neo-Nazi scene, which he referred to as, quote, kookiness from California. So worship of Hitler, Kundalini yoga, new age bullshit, fine. Satanism, step too far. <laughs> he was uh, largely responsible for the neo-Nazi infection of the pagan community, especially heathenry, which we will also explore further this season, and I can confirm they are everywhere, and they are the worst. Uh, Serrano described esoteric Hitlerism as, quote, much more than a religion. It is a way to transmute a hero into a god, which, yeah, they're making Hitler into a deity. That's pretty much what uh, I picked up on that as soon as I heard the word esoteric Hitlerism. I didn't really need that fleshed out for me, Miguel, but thank you. Uh, if you're worried that Miguel Serrano is going to unnecessarily flesh out ideas that you can pretty much pick up on immediately, don't worry. He's definitely going to do that all throughout this text. So with that brief background and overview out of the way, let us get to the actual text itself, shall we? So start off with the dedication here. The text of the book is dedicated, quote, to Rudolf Hess, the figure imam of esoteric Hitlerism, a necessary victim in the resurrection of the myth. For those of you who don't know, Rudolf Hess was the head of the Nazi party under Hitler. He was Hitler's number two. 
Hitler ran both the Nazi Party and the Third Reich. Rudolf Hess ran the Third Reich, ran the Nazi Party, but not the Third Reich. Rudolf Hess got in his head that World War II, something Hitler had been pushing for since long before he became Fuhrer, was a horrible idea that would lead to Germany's destruction. And he actually believed the Nazi Party was about Germany and not about Hitler personally. So he decided he would stop World War II by secretly stealing a Messerschmitt 110 fighter and flying it across the North Sea to England and hopefully intervening personally with the British cabinet. He parachuted into a random farm, got himself arrested, and spent the rest of his life in prison. <laughs> so that's Rudolf Hess. He was, quote, a necessary victim in the resurrection of the myth, presumably the Hitler myth. So I'm not sure if his victimhood was really necessary. It seems more self-imposed than anything, like most Nazi victimhood. Uh, but, yep, that's dedicated to Rudolf Hess. There's then a quote from American poet, literal fascist, literal traitor, and future podcast subject Ezra Pound. Uh, finally, because there's not enough text in this citation, Serrano also cites an obscure occult poem with a really fabulous line. Quote, a battle that ends badly is a spiritual adventure that has been successful. Let me read that one more time. Quote. A battle that ends badly is a spiritual adventure that has been successful, which has serious uh, vibes of SpongeBob standing around in Bikini Bottom on fire going, We did it, Patrick! We saved the city! Woo! <laughs> so, yeah, uh, apparently even when you are absolutely wrecked by the combined might of the Soviet Union, the British Empire, what's left of the French... Uh, various resistance movements and the United States of America, uh, you can still say you won, even though you clearly did not. So the text finally wraps up with a, with a framed portrait of Hitler on the page. Every one of these pages, by the way, is embossed with a, uh, all through the margin is just a circle of swastikas, which is like really fun to read in public, let me tell you. Uh, you will get some side eye and there's nothing you can do about that. And frankly, I would have it no other way. Uh, you should get at least some side-eye for reading swastika shit in public. So we come to the section entitled, What the Master Told Me, which took up way too much text. Uh, there's, this book is just overly written. It says very little, and it is overly written, even by Nazi literature standards. So, coming to the section, What the Master Told Me, Serrano tells us, quote, it seems to me that the years have not passed, but in fact they have. It seems to me that I have not aged, but in fact it could be that I have. Little by little I have realized that my work seems to be directed. Yeah, I, I, I believe your work was directed. So, yes, the years have passed, and yes, I have aged. So I should leave a testament of certain things that I know, and which no one else has in their attic. <laughs> Certain things that have been guarded for over 30 years, but are still new, almost like yesterday, without communication, without being used until the present. One treats the Second World War so great as in the Mahabharata, yet greater still, as it signaled the end of time, as if it were a Manvantara, cosmic and earthly. He who considers that tragedy as simply a world war does not understand anything that occurred. Those of us who lived through it, even in the, quote, ultimate corner of the world, 
have been marked by the essence of it and shall never forget it. When the war ended 32 years ago, it was easier to speak liberally and say what one thought. Today the atmosphere is dense and the shadows drown us. The chains imposed by the winters multiply and the truth or the light has now disappeared. I wish the Nazi shit had disappeared. No one dared tell us what was possible to see or say until five years after the end of that frightful catastrophe. The youth born these days are spiritually weak. They like to be called sons of Aquarius, needed, moderated, not by the Aquarian waters per se, placed in the margins by directed education, by propaganda, by hyped information, drugs, universal love, the flowers, the music of the last days of Lemuria, or by a terrorism without grandeur, without Mount Olympus, without the light of God. If they were to bring, uh, uh, we're going to skip that part. That's a bunch of nonsense. Basically, he doesn't like boomers very much, and he wishes Hitler had won World War II, which was a, you know, that, I'm not shocked by that take from literal Nazi Miguel Serrano. So anyway, uh, Miguel insists that he has always been faithful this whole time. Quote, let me tell you that I have never left the path, even though I have followed it in my own way and in the center of many difficulties. I have survived continuous battles with myself. The order, with a capital O, is of warriors, and my loyalty to the Fuhrer is for life and beyond life. He says the master. I'm translating as the Fuhrer, <laughs> taking a liberty there. Something I had never mentioned before was that he was the master. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Something I had never mentioned before was that he was the master that esoterically joined us with Hitler and the Great War. The master told me, quote, Hitler is one of the initiated. He can communicate astrally. I do not know who his guides, capital G, are, but I have decided to help him. I have been in communication with him. Another day, he had explained to us that Hitler had a mission to transmute destiny in the vertex of these times giving the land the impulses necessary for its mutation, its transfiguration, in which it was possible to win over physical entropy, overcoming the Kali Yuga, or Dark Ages of Iron, the transmutation of all values, the only possibility for survival. Hitler was a vehicle which through him traveled a ray from the spirit. So Hitler is an enlightened being who has been sent by the gods to rebirth the Aryan race via rays that are sent to him telepathically via the guidance from some master up in the Himalayas. People read this and are like, yes. <laughs> yes. I will devote the rest of my life to this, which is really something. Uh, this is not a text that a random innocent person is going to read. For example, I'm not a random innocent person. I'm a person who is fundamentally damaged by years of doing anti-fascist work. It has sort of fucked with my brain a little bit and definitely scarred my heart slightly, which is why I'm now uh, reading Miguel Serrano to you. But uh, unless you know for a fact your kid has wrecked his soul doing anti-fascist work for years, if you have like a 17-year-old white kid who has Miguel Serrano on his bookshelf or on his PDF or hastily printed and shoved under his bed like an old porno magazine, you're going to want to talk to your fucking kid. Because this is not an innocent book that random people lab to read. This is not even a stop on the, the pipeline from conservatism to straight-up white nationalism. 
you're just a white nationalist if you're reading this, unless we know for a fact that you are a committed anti-fascist who reads these things for reasons that have already been laid out. So, continuing here, quote, the master had always confirmed this. He was never mistaken. I w- Does Miguel have any examples of the master being mistaken, you're asking? Let's find out. Within five years of things coming to pass, he would tell me what would happen to Chile. Quote, Chile will reach the depths of its misery, and from there shall rise, newly reformed, to place itself as the head of the nations of the Americas. He never declared a thing that did not happen. Corroborated by the stars and by destiny, we should never pull away from it, nor fall backwards, nor could we return to our previous position in our combat in this grand cosmic war of the worlds. That's capitalized, by the way. To the war, I owe my initiation. To the master, my knowledge of esoteric illerism. The master never changed his opinion. If he had done so, or ordered me to do it, I would have followed. He never said that maybe we had been mistaken. Wait, hold on. So Miguel admits that he doesn't actually have any opinions of his own, according to him. He learned all of this shit from some mysterious occult person, like a knockoff Nazi Whitley Strieber. Uh... And while earlier he had said that the master was never mistaken, he then wraps up the paragraph by saying that, quote, the master never said that maybe we had been mistaken. So there's just, that's called the sunk cost fallacy, not to be an internet nerd. But the sunk cost fallacy is the idea that you've come this far, you might as well keep going because it's more painful to face the fact that you might have chosen to be wrong and course correct. So there's a very, very clear example of that in this paragraph here. Uh, Miguel was mistaken. Uh, Chile did not become head of the nations of the Americas. Uh, He was just a bored, rich kid who got into Nazism. Classic story, tale as old as time. Anyway, continuing here. Quote, the Anglo-Saxons ignore this or pretend to ignore it because they are the ones who know all of this the most. They decide who else is allowed to know. The Germans don't count with their enemy's foot on their throat, with an education and propaganda that is directed unto its most minute detail, but in the end only to reveal to the new generations its true tradition, its true history. The Italians will never liberate themselves from the Vatican yoke, which has marked their souls with fire from the index, and which pushes one to Marxism. So the Italians are inevitably going to be Marxist because they're too Catholic. All right, sure, that makes sense. What about all the Catholics in South America that uh, are not Marxist? What about them? (laughs) Nothing? No? All right. Continuing. Quote, because of this, we do not publicize, nor do we universally transmit the message outright, though we will add to this book a bibliography that covers these subjects, which I will not cite, obviously. A majority of them written with, imper- with perverse intentions by the declared enemies of Hitlerism. But, besides their enormous disagreement, they could not help but show a fascination and a terror towards that which is defined as magic socialism or realist magic. I need a t-shirt that says, I came here with perverse intentions. <laughs> so, uh, we got that out of the way. We've explained via Miguel what esoteric Hitlerism is, how he came to know it, and why he will never, he never ever admitted that he might have possibly been wrong. Uh, So we come to another section of this incredibly long, overly written text entitled, What Really Happened? And uh, let me tell you, you might want to buckle up here. 
Quote, Adolf Hitler is one of the strangest personages, I didn't even know that was a word, in the history of this land. If there are doubts over Jesus' birth with Hitler, there are doubts over his death. If from the beginning there didn't exist verified testimonies about Jesus outside of the Bible, and in one fashion or another one finds himself inside the grandiose edifice constructed by the Bible, by the very people in the Bible who said that Jesus existed but who never saw him in person, when it comes to Hitler there exist testimonies of those who have seen and touched him. Yeah, because this was written 30 years after World War II. <laughs> That's why people were still alive who would have known Hitler personally. Uh, fucking Miguel, what the fuck, man? Uh, uh. Furthermore, there are millions who could see it in the newsreels, admiring his strange appearance, his disconnected persona, as though he was a celestial being from another planet. Uh, and I put in my notes here, you should compare this to William Dudley Pelly, podcast alum, American wannabe fear, who allegedly was told by celestial beings from the fifth dimension that they wanted him to be America's next top fear all through the Great Depression, and who spent World War II in jail because as soon as America declared war on the Reich, well, America didn't declare war on the Reich. The Reich declared war on the United States, thus saving America the awkward question of, do we really want to fight the Nazis? Uh, so after Hitler declared war on the United States, the, one of the first things that the Roosevelt administration did was lock up William Dudley Pelly because they're like, look, man, we understand you think you're communicating with celestial beings from the fifth dimension and they want you to be American fear. We can't have that when we're fighting, when our boys are dying in Normandy, all right? We can't have that locking your ass up. If only someone had also, if only Miguel Serrato had been lined up against the wall by Chilean police in 1938, none of this would have been necessary, and I could just go on with my day. But anyway, in order to go on with my day, I have to continue. So, continuing here, quote, During my 10 years in India, says Miguel, I saw yogis, mystics, magi, and men outside the normal current, but they all resembled men. Even my master was all too human. Hitler was not. He was above human or inhuman. He wasn't from here. My first impression was many years ago, suddenly finding myself looking at Hitler's photo in a display window in the center of Santiago. He wore a cape, and his attitude was hardly natural, but more so ridiculous, with an intense look as though he were trying to impress someone towards an unknown world which was alienated to him. He had that little mustache above his upper lip and his nettled hands one on top of the other. Tense like broomsticks, to use an expression from Carl Jung, who used to describe him as a scarecrow. My first impression was to reject him, disagreeable and laughable. He then compares himself to St. Paul first rejecting Jesus. <laughs> That's his relationship to Hitler on first impression. He's like, oh, I wasn't immediately swayed by Hitler's magical, magical wisdom. Uh, so anyway, continuing here. Quote, those that were with Hitler, like Otto Scorzini, Leon de Grel, Hannah Reich, and others, with whom he had conversed, maintained contradictory impressions, letting us see that no one really knew him, save for Rudolf Hess, perhaps. Uh, for each, he presented himself in a different fashion, jealously guarding his secret. An exception must be made for my master, who would meet him on the astral plane, where no one can hide or disguise themselves. And I've already written of his impression a being with a will of steel, a vehicle for a lightning bolt from another world, a transmuting energy of the land and of mankind. 
To reach becoming an agent of our species, Hitler became a naturist, a vegetarian, and chaste. Uh, he then compares uh, Ava Brown to Mary Magdalene as like a spiritual wife, not someone you know that Hitler wanted to fuck. Which uh, you can't. The general rule of this podcast: if you're going to be a fascist, you can also get laid. Now the question is. Are you not getting laid because you're you you don't want to get laid because you're asexual? Are you not getting laid because you're gay uh, and you're not into women, which is fine. That's the position of this podcast. That's perfectly fine. You do you. Are you not getting laid because you're just angry and women are repelled by just how toxic you are? Um, it, it's not really clear which of those Miguel falls into, but he's definitely at least one of them. So. Uh, we come to a section now entitled What Could Have Been, which if post-war neo-Nazism is anything, it's an exercise of, oh, what could have been if only the Reich had been led by someone smarter than Hitler, or if only did better military decisions had been made, or maybe if we had had more trains for war and less for the Holocaust, or whatever. Like, post-war neo-Nazism is an exercise in circle jerking and playing what could have been. So that's exactly what this section is entitled, as well it should be. At the beginning of the war, says Miguel, the master told us, quote, I have seen Hitler's army invade England. They reach the royal castle and take the king prisoner. This premonition was written in the Akashic record out of his time in the circle of eternal return. It could have been. It should have been. It was permitted to happen. So why didn't it happen? I thought your master was never mistaken. Right? Today we know that Hitler held back his generals from attacking the British soldiers trapped at Dunkirk, allowing them to retreat back to their mainland. If arriving before the British English army could retreat, the Germans could have encircled and destroyed them. The war should have ended there. Well, so your master was never mistaken except for this mistaken prediction, but it's okay because it wasn't really your master's fault. It was Hitler's fault, but also Hitler is an enlightened being from the fifth dimension or whatever. <laughs> All right. Sure. Or it's life's a lot simpler when you're not a Nazi, I guess. You can think for yourself and, and you know, you don't you're not constantly bound in uh ties of abuse and subjugation to people who are just fleecing you out of every cent that you have and then throwing you to the wolves when they're done with it. Uh he refers Miguel goes on basically to compare Hitler to uh he he's a hyperborean, of course. Uh, he says, England is Aryan and a part of the Hyperborean continent. It's the land of Merlin, the Grail, the Knights of the Round Table, of the alchemist John Dee, and of the Tua de Danon, which are the old gods of Ireland who are not part of England. I really can't emphasize enough how much Ireland is not part of England. Uh, it is a separate island right next door. Uh, <laughs> he calls England the, quote, maritime power of the white race. Uh, and therefore, Hitler sent Rudolf Hess to England, he says, attempting to establish a sacred pact with the remainder of the Hyperboreans. There exists proof to all of this, which, by the way, as soon as I first saw the phrase, there exists proof to all of this, I immediately thought of the History Channel show Ancient Aliens. So from here on out, we're going to use the phrase Ancient Aryan Theorists. So there exists proof to all of this, say Ancient Aryan Theorists. Now, what proof exactly? Never brought up again. He just says, there is definitely proof. 
and it moves right on. <laughs> so if you're like not really uh, susceptible to that line of reasoning, this book is not for you. Also, if you're a decent human being with two with a spine and two brain cells to work together, this book is not for you. So, anyway, continuing here, the astral body is the next section we have to get through here. Quote: The master would see Hitler in the astral body, as I've mentioned before, and Hitler would see him as well. One day, the master told me, "Quote: I went very high to the top of a mountain, where there is a stone house." Inside, looking through a telescope behind a window pane, was Hitler. He had seen me approaching and made signs with his hands so as to drive me away. Voyager, go on your way, he told me. On another day, the master revealed to me that he had perhaps done something extraordinary and that he should mark the definitive moment in the drama. I saw myself in front of Hitler, the master explained. He was very close to me. So close, his face was right in front of mine shaking the index finger of my right hand, almost rubbing him. That's a weird phrase. I said to him in an energetic tone, you will reach the salvation of your colonies and not a step further will you go. That last part I will repeat, not a step further will you go. Those were the days in which Hitler had conquered France, invaded the Nordic countries, and stopped his armies at the border of the English Channel and the Pyrenees, trying in vain to obtain from Franco who was participating in Canaris's treason, a passage toward Gibraltar. With my master, we meditated over the significance of the warning. Quickly, the mystery became clear. Rudolf Hess flew to England, and Hitler attacked Russia. About the, that incredible flight by Hess, today we know he offered the retreat of Germany from all the occupied lands of the West and the preservation of the English Empire and its marine forces. He only asked for the return of Germany's African colonies. He prepared for the Great Crusade, a return to Asgard, to Tula, the original mother country, marching back to paradise of the Caucasian Asses, A-S-E-S, I don't know. Uh, it was not permitted. What happened? Why did Hitler disobey? Once I consulted Skorzeny about the attack on Russia. To him, there were no doubts. It was inevitable and necessary. It was in agreement with the themes in Nazism. The pact with Russia, however, had taxed an extreme mental tension on the German leaders, becoming a contradiction to the fundamentals of National Socialism. This was evident to the Fuhrer. Okay, just because there are contradictions in your Nazi shit doesn't mean you have to invade the largest country on earth. There are contradictions in Nazism because Nazism was a thing Hitler personally invented, so Nazism could be whatever the fuck he wanted it to be. If he had a vision one day that said, hey, we're not going to invade the Soviet Union, he could have just as easily not done that. Oh, fuck Miguel. What, a, what the fuck, Miguel? Sad sack of shit. Anyway, that brings us to my favorite section of this book by far, A Dream with Stalin. <laughs> I dream of Genie, but it's Stalin. <laughs> This is going to be good, I promise you. Quote, The night of the Russian invasion, I had a dream, almost a vision. I saw Stalin on a balcony. Below him, in a plaza, a gathering crowd. Stalin made a gesture with his hand, like a priest or guide, crestfallen, afraid of the future. He had doubt. This dream made an impression on me. Twice I have had dreams with Stalin during the war. 
The second one was near the end of the war. I saw him and his men seeking advice from an archive about the Vatican organization. An event I've never mentioned was that being a seminarian, Stalin lived for a time in Rome with the Jesuits. It's always the Jesuits. Weishaupt, founder of the Bavarian Illuminati, studied with the Jesuits. The Illuminati had great influence on Lenin. His tactics and principles were quite industrious in the Russian Revolution. So, just in this paragraph, we have dreams of Stalin in every new drill for Stalin that Miguel would have seen at the time. Plus, Stalin was secretly a Jesuit because he studied at seminary, and the only people who study at seminary are Catholics. Orthodox Christianity, not a thing that Miguel is even aware of, apparently. Um, so he has another dream of Stalin where his men are seeking advice from the Vatican uh, because he's basically guided by the Illuminati, who also influenced Lenin, apparently. Uh, so, yeah, all right, cool. I don't know what to conclude from that, except what the fuck is going on. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to plow through here and figure out what's going on together, dear listener. Miguel continues, quote, It occurred to me on several occasions that I don't need to see the facts, nor do I need to be present to know how things happened. Uh, Stalin was apparently also secretly a Freemason in addition to being a Jesuit. Quote, a mystery that is still impenetrable today is the relationship between Hitlerism and Tibet, with Mongolia and with an India that is not the one we know today, but a former underground subterranean India. I'm not sure that the relationship between Hitlerism and Tibet is an uh, impenetrable mystery, so much as that some shit Miguel Serrano made up, but that's just me. Uh... <laughs> oh boy, so we come to the conclusion of this section, and it's just as good as I remembered the first time reading it when I jotted all of this down. Quote, in 1926, Tibetan and Hindi groups were established in Berlin. At the last battle in Berlin, Tibetans and Hindi were found fighting alongside the SS. It proves that the revelations about the... I'm not going to read that. It's possible that Tibetans and Mongols were in charge. Let me review that again more slowly. It's possible that Tibetans and Mongols were in charge, like guardians on the terrestrial surface of the entrances to the underground world of Agarthi and Shambhala, refuge to the grand guides of Hyperborea. In reality, Shambhala is Kambala, the center of esoteric Hitlerism. My investigations have taken me to believe that around there, one would find our center with a capital C. Thus, the relations to Hitlerism are not directly with Tibetans or Mongols, oh, thank God, (laughs) but indirectly, as this facilitated contact, the way to, and messages with, the Hyperboreans of the submerged world. They were the German servants guarding magical access points. I'll wait to see that there has not been produced a provocative confusion caused by passing one another false adulterated messages. In any case, Tibetans and Mongols today are slaves to shadowy forces from the external world after their loss of Hitlerism at some stage of the Great War. There must be some profound reason for this. Uh, Okay, so the Germans 
were secretly overseen by a a race of Mongol and Tibetan magical beings who are not related to the Tibetans and Mongols that actually exist because apparently they're subhuman or whatever. Um, but the magical Tibetan Mongols who guard the entrances to underground Hyperborea, which might be where Hitler came from originally, or he came from space, that, that part's not clear. Um, but you get the basic gist of this book here. That's, I, I'm not going to go through uh, too much more of the incredibly overwritten text here. We've pretty much covered the gist of esoteric Hitlerism. So uh, esoteric Hitlerism was also a big, big influence on uh, noted post-war neo-Nazi Savitri Devi, who was originally going to be my topic for the uh, season premiere of this podcast. To recap very briefly, Savitri Devi was a white girl born in Greece uh, or born in France to Greek parents. She converted to Hinduism as an adult. She took the name Savitri Devi. She moved to India. She was in India during World War II. She came back from India, a convinced Nazi, and kept getting arrested in immediate post-war Germany for distributing Nazi propaganda. Uh, She later connected with the post-war British neo-Nazi scene, Colin uh, Jordan and the likes of them. She is also a big fan of George Lincoln Rockwell and the American Nazi Party. She corresponded with him over the years. Uh, and she was a, basically the number two figure in esoteric Hitlerism. Esoteric Hitlerism is a neo-Nazi strain or screed or tradition that still exists and is alive and well today. Uh, and continues to warp the minds and poison the souls of countless human beings in the United States and around the world. Uh, Miguel Serrano, by the way, lived to a ripe old age and died rich and comfortable, uh, a convinced Nazi to the very, very end. So uh, there were no consequences for him, uh, and the only justice in this world is the justice you make for people. Uh, This has been Doc, the host of the Black and Red Book Review podcast, Uh, Thank you for joining me for the season premiere. Shout out to all the unemployed, unpaid federal workers who are probably going to be forced to show up to work anyway. We highly advocate that you uh, take various means of direct action against your employer since you're not getting paid anyway. This is the Black and Red Book Review podcast signing off. I will see you in the streets.